Hey there, language lovers, Shannon Kennedy, along with Benny Lewis for a very special episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, we're inviting our very first guest back to catch up with and commemorate this milestone, Scott Young. Scott Young is a prolific learner and author. He's written several books, including Ultra Learning, has created several courses, did A Year Without English, and the MIT Challenge. In our discussion with Scott, we cover how Scott's life has changed in the last two years, how to stay engaged in learning, dealing with the long-term maintenance work of learning languages, how to get back into learning after losing momentum or confidence, time and energy management for intensive learning projects, and the top five things Scott learned since our last discussion with him. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast or the podcast in general, we always appreciate your reviews. You can let us know what you think over at languagehacking.com slash review. All of the links and resources mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the show notes. Now let's get into our chat with Scott. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 100. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. This is the 100th episode. We started this podcast just under two years ago, and the very first guest that we ever had was my friend Scott Young, who I've known for a very, very long time. So I wanted to have him back on the podcast. And we're going to ask him very different questions to how we did the first time. But in case you don't know of him, he's been blogging for a very, very long time. When I started my blog in 2009, he was already an experienced blogger. And he's since then uh, expanded on that. He's had a year of no English, which was somewhat inspired by my Fluent in Three Months projects. And we've talked about that already. He's gone on to uh, publish the Ultra Learning book. And he's got, he's just got so much experience with intensive learning projects. He's also had uh, a project to learn an entire MIT degree course in just a single year. And this is just a fascinating story, but I want to take it in a a little bit of a different direction as we continue the interview uh, from where we left off. So that being said, thank you very much, Scott, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, it's, it's such an honor to be here. 100th episode guest. Hopefully I won't disappoint the the listeners here um, who are expecting something. No, no, no. I th- I think it's going to be it's it's going to be an interesting twist to things because I I do want to focus more on the uh the aspect of learning in general and uh, people can t- can take that into applying how le- how to learn languages in general. But first off, the last time we caught up with you was uh, just under 2 years ago. So how has your life changed from that point? Yeah, so I, uh, well, um, I, so I would have had a new baby uh, when we were talking last time, and now I have a two-year-old. <laughs> so I, you know, definitely the transition to becoming a father has uh, changed my life immensely. And I think all of our lives have changed immensely in the last two years. So it's it's been an even more uh, radical departure for me. And um, I think I was, I think we were talking about, I was, I don't think I'd started yet. I was doing this like project to learn um, Macedonian, which is my my wife's native language. And so we did a we did a little like kind of like months, months long, no English in the house learning Macedonian little project. And um, I mean, since then, I have not as aggressively studied it, but uh, I get to have, you know, like I get to sit in conversations with my in-laws and like know what they're talking about, which wasn't true at the beginning of our relationship, which is really nice. And, um, you know, it, it's just been this uh, kind of interesting little experience with, um, you know, uh, picking up a language where, you know, doesn't have any travel at all. We were stuck inside during the pan, you know, early days of the pandemic and stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I think for me too, my life has changed a lot since publishing ultra learning because that was a real, uh, milestone for me of kind of like bringing together all these like weird stories of like me, you're in the book. I have a big, like, you know, uh, you know, section where I talk about, you know, meeting you and, and all of those experiences. And so it, it was really has been a pleasure the last couple of years to just talk to people after that book, because, you know, you, you, it's always so fortunate when you can share something you're really passionate about. And and I'm really passionate about learning. I'm really passionate about self-education and, and really just the power of the individual to take control of their own lives and, and learn skills and, and topics and things like that, that are important and interesting to them. 
And so this has been something that I, I've really wanted to share. And it's, it's been great to have conversations like this one talking about it. I have so many questions for you over what's happened over the last few years. I don't even know where to start. But I think for me as a fellow parent, one of the things that I'm really curious to know is now that your son is two and you've learned one of his heritage languages to be able to share that with your family and with him, what does that look like for you on a daily basis? Are you using that language with your son? How are you supporting him learning that language as well? Yeah, so we we speak English at home for the most part. And I think part of that is just that, um, like, my wife came to Canada when she was 14. And so she's in this sort of, like, liminal zone where she's, you know, obviously spent a lot of time Macedonian, speaks it fluently, but is you know, I would say English is also kind of her first language, like she speaks it also fluently and very comfortably and stuff. And so I would say that the main language we speak at home is English. We do use Macedonian sometimes, but it's not like the dominant uh, conversational language. I think that if, uh, you know, for our son and, and, and learning Macedonian, what we would probably want to do is go to Macedonia and spend time with relatives for, you know, a few weeks or a few months when he's still young. I mean, admittedly, with the pandemic right now, we haven't been able to to enact that yet. Um, but also, you know, when my my in-laws come over and we visit then you know, then the environment switches to, to Macedonian. And so I think for me, the the major takeaway I got from that that project was uh, really the, the ability to understand because most of the people I'm interacting with do understand English. So there's a total, you know, total, totally possible for me to speak English, them to speak Macedonian, and it and it works. And so I think being able to just sit in on conversations, being able to, you know, kind of uh, not just be sort of like, okay, I'm removed when, uh, you know, my wife's having conversations was really big for me. And I always just sort of take things one step at a time. So, you know, I don't see this as like an end point in any sense. I'm sure that there's going to be like future like intervals that will will happen as we progress. So uh, both you and I got into the whole blogging thing, uh, like pretty early on. And we were very lucky in our lives that we could make a business out of it. And we ultimately had the kind of way we could engineer our lives to make learning the priority. And that's why you were able to take a whole year of pure language learning. That's why you were able to take a whole year of doing an MIT course. And it was relatively easy compared to what most people would be able to do in their lives. Because it's it can be hard for most people to make that switch to doing something full-time because life gets in the way. Now, when your current situation, like you said, you're a parent and you're married and you can't just go spend a year doing something because your life's a lot more uh, complex these days. So how have you taken that into account in terms of your personal projects, whether that's learning languages or learning anything? Like, How can you uh, have some form of success, even though your time is is nothing as like uh, as open as it was previously well yeah i should add to that too just running a business i know you're in the same boat but like when we started it was just like you just have a website and you sell a pdf online and it makes you enough money so you you can buy the plane ticket to the next destination that kind of thing and now it's like i've got i've got full-time employees i've got accountants i i have you know like uh there's like quarterly meetings. Like it's just, Oh, you know, when did I become an adult? This is, there's definitely a little bit of that feeling in the background, but the, the way I feel about it is that, um, yeah, the kinds of sort of like purposefully really aggressive, almost you could say stunts that, that, that I did earlier in my blogging days are not quite as feasible, but that doesn't mean that you know, learning projects are not a go or, or I don't spend a lot of time doing that. Like we even just talked about this, this Macedonian project that happened a little while ago. And it, you know, it was very similar. Like I, I wasn't working on it full time, but it was just sort of in the background and it was, it was a good thing to do for about, uh, about a month and a half that I was, it was like working on it intensively. Right now I, I'm doing sort of, sort of some research for, for maybe a new book. And so I'm just like reading, you know, you'll, you know, I don't know if people, if people are listening, can't hear in the background, uh, but I've got like a lot of books on this bookshelf. I just keep buying them and, uh, and reading books. And so, you know, that's the kind of project for me. And so I think where I've shifted a little bit is not so much the being involved in learning projects, but I think the style of how I present them maybe have changed. I think we kind of got started on the internet where it was a very specific kind of online culture where, you know, it seems weird talking about it now because people who weren't there at the time, it doesn't, it's sort of like, well, why would you do that? But very much in that kind of time period, the things that you and I were doing were kind of in vogue. Like there was Chris Gilbo doing his visiting every country in the world, Tim Ferriss 
there is doing these little experiments, like the idea of like, I'm going to go take on some personal challenge, document it extensively and like kind of publish it maybe in real time on a blog was a very common thing that was kind of unique to that sort of culture. And now I feel like having done some of those projects, I feel a little bit less need maybe, let's say, to to do these kind of like, it's just sort of a conspicuous demonstration. But I feel like I'm, you know, obviously still really engaged in learning. So for me, I think that the kind of projects I take now are usually more of a kind where, you know, I really want to know the answer to a question. So I, you know, spend months and months and months reading books and reading journal papers and this kind of thing. And then and then I'll write something at the end of it. So people who visit my blog can see I've, you know, um, published and co-published a few of these what I call complete guides, which are kind of like almost mini book length treatments on certain topics. And so those are also kind of like little learning ultra learning projects it's just they don't take the form of like day one and then there's you know me holding the video camera doing some kind of selfie video or something so i think that the the role of learning projects in my life hasn't gone away but they've definitely changed in form in terms of how they get presented i think on on my website so you just mentioned something that i think is really important and while you haven't necessarily been doing it with language learning i think it's something that can be applied to language learning or just learning in general and that's how to stay engaged with your learning projects so you mentioned that you are still engaged but obviously now as a father and with other things going on and at a different stage in your life how do you maintain that engagement well, I think one of the main ways you can maintain engagement is to do things that actually matter to your life. I know that sounds like a weird question to say, but I think the difficulty we often have is in how do we link what we're learning, what we're practicing to goals and pursuits that that make a concrete difference in the actual life that we're living. And so I am, I'm always trying to look for ways that I can integrate my work with things that interest me. So it can sometimes be tricky to find that overlap, but I mean, right now I'm I'm right researching obsessively this topic because I think it might become another book. And so this is like part of my professional life. And so I don't have a problem spending my working hours working on it. And I think similarly, you know, with those kinds of practical learning projects, you know, if you are if you're in a job or something and you you get on a new team or you're working on a new project and you suddenly have to learn something to like get up to speed like that provides a real motivator if you go to another country or you're working with clients who you know use another language and it's like okay now I have to use this language to interact with them that creates such an impetus such a drive to go forward and so i do think that people have a hard time learning projects that have no consequences, uh, meaning that there's like, it doesn't help them socially. It's not like a hobby. It's not something that they're making friends through. It's not something that gives them personal satisfaction. It doesn't help them through their work. It doesn't help them like deal with any practical problems in their in their life. I think you can do those projects. I just think it requires a, like a really, really strong intrinsic interest in order to keep you going on it. But I think there's also the opposite problem where you know, kind of take as given your your daily routine, your daily responsibilities. There's no vision there. There's no kind of like, here's what I could become. Here's what I could do. And so you only take on projects. You only take on things that are well within like what you're capable of doing. And so you don't grow that way either. So for me, it's it's just about trying to find that sweet spot overlap of like, here's something that would be useful. Here's something that would be interesting. Here's something that maybe I could do if I put in the work. And and it can be hard to find those projects. But I think if you really thought about it, you'd find a lot more than you think. And they might not all be languages, but I think definitely um, learning comes in many different stripes. And so that's something that I always seek out. And I think that's the healthiest form of engagement when it's like you don't have to force yourself to 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 like it. It might you might have to, you know, have some self-discipline and willpower to stick with it, but um, but it definitely matters. You don't don't feel like it's just trivial or or just for fun or just, you know, just ah, whatever. If it gets boring, then I'll just give it up. Coming back to the languages, um, like you you were just saying that these uh, intensive bursts are maybe not necessarily going to be the theme of your life moving forward. However, you did have that one month of Macedonian. And I'm curious, like, how did that look given your current life situation? And when the opportunity presents itself that you can go to, to Macedonia with your family, what do you plan to do in the weeks leading up to that in terms of like integrating it into your life? And how would that have looked different now compared to how it would have been during your year of no English? I mean, I don't think it was so, so different from when I did um, projects in the past. I mean, I I did uh, I did devote some time to it. I wasn't working on it full time. I think the most, the most intensive project I did was definitely the MIT one, just because it was so 
you know, like language learning, you can kind of integrate if you're doing a kind of immersive experience, you can integrate with some of your social activities. So you're not you're not always just learning the language, you're also just using it in your daily life. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of this kind of, uh, you know, I, I call it the no English rule, but this approach is just because one of the major barriers to becoming fluent in a language is you just need so much practice to have it become automatic. What's the best way to have it become automatic? Well, just to just have it be part of your life for large, you know, large periods of time. Um, and, and, you know, we can get into some of the mechanisms of that uh, a little down the road, but I think that for me, the, that Macedonian challenge in some ways, like it was a little different than if I was, you know, I did another project where I was learning a, a quantum mechanics and that one was just like, I just sit down and I study for like six, seven hours a day. So definitely you have to like, I have to cut off time. I have to like put some, you know, shift some work things over around and, you know, make sure that I'm not taking on any major projects uh, in the, in my business at the same time. And, you know, after allocate time, whereas the Macedonian project was like, yeah, you know, I have like a couple hours a day where I'm doing uh, either either kind of like deliberate tutoring or doing some kind of uh, grammar textbook practice. Uh, flashcards are usually easy to insert around the day, but most of it was just, you know, we're just going for walks, we're just chatting, we're just doing that kind of stuff. And there's a little effort associated with that. I don't want to make it, I want to make it clear it's not it's not as easy as speaking in English. But I think just the fact that it fits in with life um, works a bit better. And so this kind of goes back to the theme I was talking about is that I try to find projects that suit the sort of opportunities I have. And so, you know, like, as I said, right now, researching for a book is like a really good excuse to like dive deep into a topic because, you know, I know at the end, there's going to be something maybe productive that'll come out of it so that it's not like I have to, you know, well, this is just a wasteful activity and I have to justify why I'm not doing any work for, for long periods of time. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that I always try to do is to find ways to integrate learning into my real life, like the things that are actually matter to me. And, um, you know, in language learning, I think one of the best ways to do it is if you have social outlets that involve using the language, then yeah, you, you know, it's not going to be the same as like hard studying, but it's going to give you a lot of low-key practice time, which just makes you more automatic and, and gets you more fluent. Over the last two years, how would you say your language learning has changed? Yeah, well, one of the things I will admit is that um, I think when I got into this, because I, I did it a little differently than Benny. I know you kind of, you were sort of slowly adding languages over a longer period of time. And I know everyone knows you for these fluent in three-month projects, but like most of the languages you learned were not this three month burst, it was like, you were in Spain for a while. And then you lived in several different, you know, Spanish speaking countries and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, you have had a variety of experiences there. But for me, just because of the nature of this, I did a lot of that in this one short burst. And one of the things that I think I, I don't want to say miscalculated, but I just didn't fully appreciate when it is first that uh, just the maintenance, the long term maintenance work of being able to maintain languages fluently is very high. It's uh, more than I thought it was going to be. I, I, I had had the impression learning French from before that I was kind of like, well, you know, I've seen my French, how it kind of decays when I don't use it for a while. But uh, I think maintaining multiple languages because they interfere with each other uh, tends to be harder. And I think also when you learn new languages, so the learning Macedonian was a real kind of uh, interesting experience for me because I did it sort of again over an intensive burst. And then I went, I went back and I did some Spanish tutoring and it was like, Oh, what happened to my Spanish? My Spanish has gone down so much. And it's just because I had all these words, vocabulary, grammar patterns that were like, I had to kind of extract, you know, this is Spanish, this is Macedonian. You have to do this sort of separating work. And so I think my experience from that has been that, um, while I think what everyone would like ideally is to just be tip of the tongue fluent in many different languages, I think that the the work that that requires on an ongoing basis it's is definitely a commitment. And so for me, I'm I'm a little bit more inclined to be like, you know what, yeah, my languages are going to get a little bit rusty, but I'm going to be using them again when I when I have opportunities to practice and, and do things like that. And so we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording that I've I've actually shifted way more to like input as a as a mechanism. Like Chinese would be the one, Mandarin would be the one that I, I spend uh, the most time on. But I, I very rarely speak it these days. My my Chinese meetup got shuttled because of the pandemic. I didn't really want to go on Zoom meetings with 15 different strangers talking over each other. And you know, with a 
a child at home and, and business and everything like that, I haven't been able to, you know, allocate time for tutoring, but I like, I'm like watching Chinese shows and Netflix. I have some YouTube channels that I follow in Chinese. So my listening comprehension ability in Chinese, I think is probably as good as it has ever been, even though, you know, if you had to record me having a conversation, I'd be like, oh yeah, what's this again? And it would definitely be a little bit rusty. So I, I don't know, it sounds a little bit like a compo, but I definitely feel like my attitude has shifted a little bit towards that goal of just being like on the drop of a hat, razor sharp fluency with multiple languages, just that, you know, I like learning lots of different things. Languages aren't even my sole focus. And so I, uh, I, I definitely feel like the, the approach to relearning and the approach to just sort of getting it back up to speed when you need it is definitely a, is definitely an okay uh, strategy to follow. So uh, something I know a lot of listeners would love to hear your answer on that I'm going to frame, I'm going to frame as, as uh, asking you for advice for me personally. All right. So I have had uh, several years where I lost my momentum. And this was mainly for my personal life struggles that I was going through. And then in part, it was contributed by the pandemic. I know for a lot of people, the pandemic may have thrown their life out of whack and maybe it's been the cause of them losing that momentum. But in a couple of months, I am going to have completely sold everything I own. And I'm going to be trying to return to something similar to what I was doing um, before 2013 of moving around learning languages. This is going to require a lot of focus for intensive learning. So, you, you know, I already have lots of strategies that work for me. But based on the research you've done on learning in general, when somebody both is kind of like older and they're in a different stage in their life and maybe like they've lost this momentum, maybe even lost a little bit of the confidence they used to have. What would you recommend I do as I get back into my learning projects later this year in a more intensive way, trying to go back to something like I did before while also accepting I can't relive the past and I have to, I have to accept some, some changes that I'm maybe not going to love. Well, I think, you know, and and I'm not, like obviously, yeah, this is a weird thing to be saying to you, my uh, my mentor of language learning of all people. But but I definitely feel like um, the fluency that like the tip of the tongue proficiency from from zero from like okay, you know, you haven't done any practice in a year, now have a conversation in Korean, like you're like you're on like an interview or something, um, and it's just like okay, go. Uh, you're it's going to be difficult because just basically. There's this really good um, um, paper uh, called uh, A New Theory of Disuse by, by Robert Bjork. He's a cognitive psychologist, and, and I really like it because he basically argues that the memories that we have, um, this includes words and grammar and this kind of stuff, uh, they, they probably are still there in some sense. But the issue is that we lack retrieval access to them. We lack the ability to sort of bring them up kind of on demand. And the idea is that the storage capacity of the brain is, you know, for for practical purposes, maybe infinite, but the retrieval capacity, the ability to draw something up given a particular situation is probably not. That's probably a little bit more tightly constrained. And, uh, and so things that you don't use probably fade from this retrieval axis. So this is why like, you know, if, if I gave a final exam for classes that you did in university, you do very badly and you do badly just because you're like, I don't remember any of this. But if I gave you the, uh, that class again to relearn, you'd learn it much faster. And so there's lots of experiments showing that relearning is a lot faster than initial learning. And so I know this is a kind of a bittersweet sort of topic. And I think especially given like the sort of persona that maybe you and I present where we're kind of infallible you know, learning polymath experts, whatever, it can seem kind of like, oh, well, you know, you should be able to just be at fluent for everything. But the, the work may, needed to keep it fluent means you have to kind of be using it continuously at that level. And uh, that may just not be practical or realistic for your situation. But if you go back and you relearn it, you're going to be a lot faster. And so I think, uh, you know, for you, you'd probably be surprised, like even for languages, maybe, you know, that you haven't done a lot of practice in, in those last five years, uh, you would be picking it up much faster than the first time around. So I think relearning is is definitely powerful. It's underrated. Um, it should not be given a bad name. And the idea that because you're not immediately fluent with something that you haven't practiced for a while, that 
that just everything is gone is is false. That's not how the brain works. But I also think that, you know, there's a second aspect to your question, which is like for learning new languages or sort of reaching new levels. And there's that drive and intensity that maybe we had in our in our 20s that we can't always sustain now that we're, we're old men or no, we're definitely just uh, in a different phase of our lives. And I think the, the right approach there is to find a project that suits your life and is interesting to you and feels achievable. And so I think the flavor of the projects I'm taking on look very different from now, but they come from the same, the same spirit. They have the same spirit. And so, you know, I'm not as much about like, how can I, you know, just grind through, you know, 60 hours a week, but I, I'm very interested in, you know, setting up this project, setting up like, this is what I want to work on. And like, you know, that sounds fun. That sounds cool. So even the language learning project I did with my wife had, like, it didn't have nearly the intensity that like, let's say learning Mandarin in China over three months did where I was like, okay, I'm, you know, doing a hundred new flashcards a day and I'm going through, you know, like seven, eight hours, but it, it was still a really great project. I had like such a good time. And so I think the more you can focus on picking this sort of concrete goal, this concrete challenge that feels good for you, that feels interesting, feels something you're excited about. I mean, that can range over huge levels of difficulty or intensity or, or, or what have you. I think what, what makes it special is just that you have some sort of concrete goal, objective uh, project that organizes it. And I think that's really underrated because I think that's not how most people approach it. Most people just have a kind of, well, I'll do whatever I want to do and just, you know, kind of put in some time. But I think there is really something beneficial to be like, you know, this is what I'm working on. This is how I'm working on it. This is how I'm structuring it over a, over a very specific piece of time. So that this is like, this is what I'm doing. And that, you know, there's just so many different forms that can take. And, you know, even when I was on my, my honeymoon, we went, my wife and I went to Italy, I did like a little learning project where I was like, okay, I got this like sketchbook and I was going to do like watercolor kind of pencil drawings. And it was just like, we're just walking around and we're like, both my wife also likes art. So we just like sit down and doodle for a bit. And I mean, that's not an intensive project at all. But just this idea of doing a sketch a day was just kind of like a nice sort of like little way of looking at that project. And so I think you can do lots of things like that. So they don't all have to be, you know, these crazy, intensive, aggressive projects where you're trying to be the best in the world. They can just be fun things that, you know, orient your attention, get you to take on new challenges and, and something you're excited about. So speaking of intensity, one of the things that I've struggled with quite a bit as a parent is time management and energy management. It's often like to work on these intense projects. I either don't have the time to sit down needed or I don't have the energy when I do have the time. So how do you balance this? Yeah, no, this is this is huge. I mean, having having become a parent, I can attest to the time commitment, you know, um, it's it really is like having another full-time job. Uh, and I mean, I mean that in the best way possible. Like I, I love my son. I love spending time with him, but definitely, you know, when I think about the kinds of just enormous amounts of time I used to waste when I didn't have kids, it, it's definitely a different picture. And so I sympathize with anyone who's in that situation. Now I have a few thoughts on this. So there's, there's been this kind of little, like, I'm going to go a little academic here, but there's been this sort of controversy in um, in academia about what's the best way of describing this feeling you have of like energy or like the ability to do difficult things. And one of the theories was by Roy Baumeister, and it was this idea of ego depletion that was sort of like when you use your willpower, you do things that are hard. They're not like the easiest thing possible. You sort of draw down an internal resource and that makes you more tired. And this sort of seems intuitively plausible, at least. I mean, we, we definitely feel tired after working hard all day. And we, we seem to, you know, at that point, have less energy to like resist eating junk food or, you know, just binge watching Netflix or things like that. But, uh, but there was a, you know, in the whole replication crisis in psychology, where, you know, a lot of papers that were thought to be science now don't seem to be adding up. Uh, this theory was one of the victims that a lot of the, you know, proposed mechanisms, things like that, don't seem to be true. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that the nail is in the coffin, that this theory is definitely false, but uh, there's some reasons to doubt it. And one of the proposed sort of alternative theories is this uh, theory, um, which argues that effort is about opportunity cost. And so the idea is that there's a part of your brain that, you know, is, is sort of near the front part that can do a lot of different tasks, and it requires your conscious attention. And when you use this part of your brain, there's a little part of you that's sort of always saying, is this the best thing I could be doing? Is this the best thing I could be doing? Is this the best thing I could be doing? And so focus demanding tasks, tasks that require this 
like complete involvement of this system are going to be paying this highest price. And so if you know, you're doing something where you're kind of like in a distracted state multitasking, then it's not demanding as much of you because you know, you're never really committing yourself fully to doing it. But when you're studying, when you're learning a language, you're doing any of the things that we're talking about, you're really using this full system. And so it's always sort of saying, is this the best use of my time? Is this the best use of my time? And it's this that they propose is what creates the feeling of effort, what makes some activities feel effortful is this kind of constant opportunity cost of maybe I could be doing something else that would be more immediately and quickly gratifying and rewarding. And while this doesn't suggest like an immediate silver bullet fix, one of the things that I thought was very interesting that it suggests, well, what what determines your opportunity costs or what your alternatives are? And your alternatives are the things in your immediately accessible surroundings that could possibly compete with what you're doing. And so one of the things that I like to think about is that if you rewind the clock back like, you know, 100, 150 years, a lot of people would just read for hours for leisure, right? And now that's sort of seen as being a kind of, oh, you're you're reading for hours and hours a day in the evening, like you have to have a lot of willpower and dedication versus, you know, Netflix or TikTok or Instagram or whatever. And I think the reason is not because you know, people back then had discipline and we don't now, it was just because they didn't have any alternatives, right? That was the most entertaining, that was the most high reward option in their environment. And so I think if you want to create an environment, I think especially as a parent, especially as someone who is, you know, you want to do interesting, challenging, meaningful things, but you have all these other competing obligations and you feel tired, you don't have that much time. One of the things that you got to work on is, well, how can I kind of A, make the thing that I want to do easy enough to get started doing it? So you got to like remove all the barriers that friction and, and this kind of stuff. But also you need to kind of remove some of the distractions, remove some of the things that are going to be the obvious competitor to this activity. And so that's one of the things that I've, I've really tried to do, I think, a lot more rigorously in the last couple of years is not being on social media as much. Um, I, I, I've, I've gone off social media entirely, but I think if you don't want to go that far, just like having time periods that you do social media and not just having it all, all the time, you know, not having a lot of these apps on your phone, all this kind of thing. And I don't think it necessarily means that you're automatically going to just find it easy to work on these things. But I think the more that you remove that as a distraction so that you're not even thinking about doing that because you don't do that, uh, then it becomes a bit easier to engage in these activities. And, you know, I've seen a difference myself since I've stopped being on social media. I find it a lot easier to like watch uh, courses, uh, like on Coursera or MIT Cor Open Courser. Why? Because it's like, well, I want to kill some time. I, I'm a little bored. I don't, I'm, I'm taking a break. Well, what, what, what are the options? What are the things I can do? And that's sort of like the, the, the highest value entertainment option for me at that moment. And so it's relatively easy to do it. Whereas if it's that versus, you know, watching some stupid video on, on YouTube, that just like endless scrolling algorithm of just like, well, this is just, this is silly, but I don't care about it. I think that's, that's an important strategy. Now, again, I mean, this is not an easy thing to do. So I'm not trying to make this, this broader claim, but I think if you, if you really want to engage in more meaningful, um, somewhat harder, more difficult activities, you have to think about your entire sort of ecosystem that you exist in and what are the alternatives and what are the things that are going to be grabbing your attention and pulling it away because if you don't do that I just think yeah you're just going to do the default it's just going to be very difficult to do anything that's not the easiest possible option in that moment and I think that's especially true if you have kids and you're busy and you're tired and you know you're not like we were when we were in our 20s where you you know just have ample ample free time so you know why not do something really difficult so when you and I had these projects. It was very easy to to have the external motivating factors of we're publicly announcing this to people or we're potentially going to the country. And that can be a huge push that we we have this extra pressure. And I found that like as I've been getting back into learning languages with a similar vigor to what I had previously, that I'm getting this push mainly from uh, still external factors. Like I really did want to dive back into uh, German because I knew I was going to go to a part of the world I could speak it. The same with Spanish, that I was going to go to Mexico. And that's still going to be a theme of my life that I have travels coming up. But like you said, nowadays you you have this more intrinsic motivation that you're very happy to to just watch YouTube videos in Chinese, even though you're not going to go to China in the next few months. So how how did you embrace this more intrinsic aspect of uh, them motivating you, whereas previously it was a little bit more this external factor of I have to do this because I have a blog post that I need to 
produced by the end of this project or I'm going to the country. Well, I mean, I think it's always both extrinsic and intrinsic. I, I'm not, I don't want to make the case that uh, intrinsic is always better. I think for me, um, as I said, this this kind of like maintaining your your sort of ecosystem of tasks and activities. I mean, this is a big topic, but I think it's just one of the tools. Obviously, you know, we're, we're still talking about having a concrete project that you're trying to achieve is that kind of demand. Um, strategy of like creating more demand on yourself to 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 focus through. And so I think one of the things that's really important about that is being concrete. You know, it, that's the thing is you have goals, but they're not concrete. And so because they're not concrete, they don't actually specify any demand for you at any particular moment. So you really are really only relying on intrinsic motivation when that's the situation. You are re- only really relying on like, well, this seems like something I'd like to do right now. Um, and so I think that, uh, that kind of creating a project, creating demand environments, creating something that's going to push you to go forward is really important. And I think it's, it's extremely important whenever what you're doing is difficult. So, you know, I mentioned like watching the Chinese videos, I'm able to do that because having spent years and years, uh, like learning Chinese, uh, they're not so effortful for me. I mean, they're more effortful than English, but they're not so effortful for me that I can't enjoy watching them. Like the, the, like the kind of reward effort ratio is there. That would not have been true when I was in, in China. Like I would have, you know, oh, this is requiring all of my attention to be able to understand it. And so I think there's a range of activities. I, I don't want to be saying that, you know, it's all like the kind of low key, easy ones. It's, you think, you know, you have to do all of them. I think that depending on what you're trying to accomplish, you're going to have to do things that are difficult and you're going to need that demand, that sort of maybe external motivator, whatever it is. But I think as long as the project is something that when you view the project as a whole, it's something that you feel interested in. It's something you've chosen. It's something that you want to pursue. Then extrinsic motivation doesn't need to be a bad thing. I think we often think of extrinsic motivation in terms of other people or society or someone telling you to do something that you don't really want and then you just have to do it. Whereas I see this is is a very kind of self-authored kind of external motivation. Like, you know, I would would love to take on another uh, Chinese project at some point. You know, right now, like it's it's maybe not the not the time. I'm working on other projects, and we can get into that as well. Just that the kind of you have lots of projects you'd like to do, and you are only working on one at a time is is itself a kind of way of avoiding this sort of distracting influence. But I think uh, I'm sure I'm going to take on other projects in the future, and you know they can be small projects like I'm going to read this book, and I'm going to spend 15 minutes a day trying to read this difficult book, and it's in another language. Or it can be you know some sort of mega project that like okay, over the next three months I'm going to be able to, you know, narrate my Chinese articles or whatever. I have to actually just like work at it for for hours and hours and hours to be able to get to a level where it's it's possible. So you mentioned it and you offered us getting into it. So I'm going to go ahead and get right into it. Let's talk about prioritizing projects. My sort of advice that I usually give or my kind of my inclination personally is what I call single projecting where you just you just have one project at a time and that's your focus and uh, this causes a lot of confusion because it's very difficult to define what is a project what's not a project like you're not literally not working on anything else but the way I would put it is this is that there's a kind of low effort engagement that happens in the moment this can be kind of a spontaneous engagement or is entirely habit driven so something that you just do because that's what you usually do in this sort of circumstance and it doesn't require that much planning it doesn't require that much willpower and so certainly language learning or language practicing can be like that I, I've had periods of years where like, you know, once a week, I have a language lesson, and I just, you know, spend some time, I book it ahead of time, and I do it, but I'm not thinking about it, like outside of that context. You can also do things where, you know, just every evening I read a bit of my book. And, and so this kind of habitual engagement is definitely one way to move forward on your goals. And I, I don't, I don't think it's there's anything wrong with it. But I also think that where this pro- process of habitual engagement runs into difficulties is whenever you do, need to do anything complicated that requires a lot of effort and has a lot of like moving parts. So you're not just doing the exact same thing every single day for, you know, the end of time. And so for those kinds of things, I recommend a project. And so a project is kind of like what we were doing. So, you know, like Benny Lewis's fluent in three months would be a project, but even simpler things like, you know, over the next month, I'm going to improve my reading ability in Chinese. And I'm going to be, you know, working with these materials and this kind of stuff would also be a project. And I think projects are a really good way to get you up to some level that you want to reach. And then they can transition into habits in the long term. So I, I, I often, 
often view it that way that you, you know, do some sort of burst where you're doing some sort of project and then you try to transition it into some kind of maintenance with habits and things like that. And I think that when you have projects, you want to have very few at concurrently. You only want to have one ideally, but you know, sometimes you can have a work one and a personal one if you, you know, if you're if you're able to keep those worlds separate. And the reason is simply that to actually achieve any goal that has any difficulty or complexity requires you to manage it. It requires you to think about it. And when you're thinking about six or seven goals, they just don't, they just don't get achieved. You're not able to overcome those barriers. You're only able to do kind of what just sort of flows from your habits automatically. And so I really think that, you know, for language learning, this is why I recommend if you're starting to learn a language and you're trying to reach a particular level, just just do one, just do one at the time. You know, if it might be a little bit of a different case, if it's like, okay, I'm at a conversational level with a couple languages and I want to just kind of maintain them or maybe just sort of in a low pressure way, improve them just sort of gradually, that's probably okay. But I think, you know, if I were to learn any new language, if I decided right now, for instance, like, oh, I want to be able to, you know, have conversations in Japanese, I would need a project for that. There's no way that I would be able to do it just with a kind of like, well, 15 minutes a day, I'm going to like, you know, tap on Duolingo or something like it's, it's not going to get you there. And so I think, the having projects, having only one project at a time and having projects that are very defined in scope is really important. So we were talking about this, like having really concrete, this is what I'm working on. I'm doing this and not something else is very important. I think because it creates that, that sort of demand, it creates that kind of like, this is what I need to do right now, uh, as opposed to just sort of a vague nebulous desire to be like fluent in French or something, which, well, yeah, but that doesn't tell you what to do right now. It doesn't tell you what you're actually working on when the deadline is when you're actually trying to achieve it by. And in terms of the projects that you think are going to be big for your life, what do you see as uh, taking the priority over the next couple of years? Well, I mean, I, I always do things one project at a time. And so I often will come up with projects like I don't I don't usually plan it that far out. But uh, I mean, right now I'm doing book research. So that means, you know, reading like a book or two every week and reading lots of papers and doing writing and talking to experts. Like this is all consuming. This is, takes a, a huge amount of my time. And so it does mean that, you know, even a lot of like the kind of lower key engagement I'm doing, I'm, I'm sort of putting aside for the moment so that I can focus on this. But I mean, once I get to a kind of comfortable position with that, I'm, I'm sure I'll be working on other things. Like, as I said, but you know, maybe I'll be able to travel again. Maybe I'll go to Macedonia and I'm sure if I'm there, then that will be a little project for me to improve my Macedonian ability. Or, you know, if I'm, if I'm, uh, staying here and I'm working on some other thing, I, I'll find some other project. And so I tend not to, you know, have these kind of like five year, 10 year plans. I tend to do it kind of one project at a time, but that's, that's a really like, for me, at least that's how I organize my life is I think about it in terms of these concrete projects. And I found that very helpful because I think that framing of picking concrete specific goals that you're working on that, you know, have a, they don't go on forever either. That's another thing too. I, I, we obviously want to be learning languages for our whole lives. So it's not to say that, you know, you want to work for, for a month and then you're done. But it's, it's to say that if you have this kind of, I'm working on this for this period of time, I'm going to get to this level and then I'm going to decide what I want to do. I think, I think that's very beneficial because it lets you marshal that energy and resources. Whereas if you just make the argument, well, I'm just going to be working on this forever, then that's when you let distractions and other things creep in because, well, you can't be doing one thing forever. You have to be doing all these things. And so I think that's why it can be so valuable is that it's much easier to say to yourself, okay, for the next month, I'm only working on this than it is to say, you know, okay, you know, forever, this is my only thing I'm working on. That's probably not, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to believe that when you say that to yourself. So what would you say are the top five things you've learned since we last spoke to you on the podcast? I would say one thing I've learned is the, maintenance and interference for languages are like a real a real issue if you speak if you speak multiple i think uh you know definitely having uh seven i think that i'm was at some point have been conversational with uh it's definitely an ongoing um bit of work and so that is one thing that i think i've shifted my opinion on a little bit i i used to be much more of the idea that you should you know, always just sort of maintain it at fluency. And I think I'm a little bit more realistic now that, you know what, I'm going to, you know, maybe prioritize uh, one or two and then like be okay with re relearning a bit for the other ones later. And, and, you know, taking advantage of like, okay, it's a like a quiet period in my work. Okay, so now I'll schedule some italki sessions and, you know, get back up to speed with some of them. Uh, I think I've, um, I, I think I've come to appreciate sort of more input focus methods as well. I think, you know, we were talking about this, like travel was such an important part of the language learning experience for you and I. 
And I think travel affords unique opportunities, but it also has unique kind of difficulties as well. And so I think for people who are learning language at home and they are, um, you know, in a position where the main way they would use the language is, let's say, watching shows on Netflix or or, or reading books or things like that. Uh, I've come to appreciate that as a, a certain, certainly like it's very different from how we approach it, but I think it's viable in a lot of ways. So I I, I think that's something that I've, I've come to appreciate. I think a lot of the things that I, I previously thought are, are still true. I don't think that there's any been, been many major changes in, in how I think about you know, learning languages and, and sort of the role they have in my life and stuff. But I definitely feel like the approach that I've taken is, has shifted just as my life has shifted, uh, as I think is, is normal. So when we had you on the podcast almost two years ago, you were the very first person we asked the question that we actually now ask of everybody when they're on, which is what, what is your definition of language hacking? And you were saying uh, at the time that for you, language hacking is taking the learning process seriously, reflecting on what you're doing and making changes to become more efficient rather than plowing forward. So I'm just curious if you would add anything to that. that that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good answer. I think I would keep that. But I do think that the the idea that I have and I feel like is is, is really motivating me is to view learning as a, as a process. And I think sometimes it's difficult to step outside of it. I think sometimes we we don't see our learning as a process. We see it as a kind of like a reflection on ourselves. And so, you know, if you're performing badly, that's because you're stupid. Or if you are performing really great, it's because you're so smart. Or, or if, you know, this is happening, it's because of, of something else external to you. And I think if you can kind of step out and see, see the learning as a process, see it as a process of, of memory, see it as a process of skill acquisition, see it as something that you are, are doing, then you can kind of step out and look at it and like, well, what am I actually doing? What is, what is actually being practiced here? What is actually, you know, what am I remembering? What am I struggling with? And I think if you can adopt that perspective, then you can kind of have a little bit more of the engineer's mindset where you're sort of looking at like, hmm, okay, well, I have this problem. So what could I do? What could, what could I, I, I work on? And I think that's often a more healthy approach than to just sort of ascribe it to more mysterious factors. And this isn't to say that, you know, everyone's the same or isn't to say that like, you know, life doesn't get in the way. And like, we've been talking all about that. Um, and, but I think, you know, the more you can have that kind of objective look at your learning process and you can make decisions that way, I think you're, you're in a better position than when you do it just sort of emotionally. And, and so I really try to do that with, with learning is to try to just see it as kind of like, see the learning process as just kind of like a puzzle that you're trying to solve and, and not try to, you know, insert yourself in it so much that you are, you know, judging your worth as a human being based on how you're able to do it, which I think a lot of us, you know, including myself, maybe do a little bit uh, more often than we should. That's a very good reminder, for sure. Very interesting to have you back on the show again, Scott. This was uh, uh, great to swing back to some things we talked before. Well, well, we'll have to see at uh, episode 200 or something if, I, if I've changed my mind once again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So thank you so much for coming back and for helping me kick off the Language Hacking Podcast originally and uh, to celebrate this 100th episode. And of course, we will have links to all of Scott's stuff in the show notes for today's episode. So you can check out everything he's working on and his book and everything else he's uh, been. Like you said, I've been a mentor to him, but he's also absolutely been a mentor to me in many ways over the years so it's it's why you had to be the first guest i was uh i couldn't have thought of anybody else i wanted to kick the podcast off with well thank you so much for having me it's been great chatting and, and catching up happy language learning happy language learning All right. So at the end of each episode, Benny and I like to share something that we took away from our discussion with our guest. And this is something that you can implement into your own learning, try out over the next week and see how it works for you. So I feel like there were just a million takeaways in our chat with Scott. So Benny, can you pick out just one for you? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I asked him about this directly because it impacts my personal learning journey that I've had this break and I'm trying to get my momentum back in languages. And I always had this um, this kind of intuitive understanding of how relearning a language is going to look. But I like what he said, that the memory is there. So it's not that I've forgotten the languages I haven't used in a few years. It's more a case that 
the retrieval access isn't there. So it's uh, it takes away a little bit of that guilt that we do tend to, and he said at the end that as learners, we tend to pin our, our self-worth to the result of our learning projects. And if I've already learned a language and I can't speak that language now, the temptation is to be is to say, well, I'm a failure as a language learner. But realistically, um, you just have to think of it in terms of projects, like you said, and specifically with retrieval, you just accept that you can have a relearning project, but that relearning project may go extremely quickly. So it's not like you need to repeat the same amount of time that you had before. But if you step back from that guilt that you don't have it uh, like at the tip of your tongue, like you would have had five or 10 or whatever number of years ago, that the memory is there, just the retrieval has be, has gotten rusty. And that's definitely uh, something I was aware of, but I like the way that he's phrased it, that uh, it's definitely applied for me in most recent times as I'm reactivating my languages, that I have had to review old notes, but I'll get through those old notes extremely quickly. And I will get back to that uh, retrieval stage that I had before. So that was one of my bigger takeaways. What was yours? I would have to say my biggest takeaway was what he shared about staying engaged with your learning and that it really takes a lot of reflection and personalization. And that's something that we often forget to do. Like we think, oh, if I just power through it and just keep doing it, that's going to work. And we don't really reflect about it. We just kind of force ourselves to do it. Um, And so I think my takeaway would be this week to spend some time reflecting and really remembering what my purpose is with this thing, how I'm connected to it, how I can stay connected with it and things that I can do to make it more a part of my life and not just like this thing that's external that I have to do, which in a lot of ways, some of my language studies has become, it's like this kind of outside structure that I keep trying to fit into my day. And I think that it I, it could be a lot more seamless than that. So that would be my takeaway. All right. So once again, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or the language hacking podcast in general, please share your thoughts with us over at languagehacking.com slash review. You can also let us know what you enjoy most about the podcast so that we can keep doing more of it. And once again, the show notes are available to you as a part of this episode over at languagehacking.com. And until the next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pascoe, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.